The following live recording of Swami Vivekananda Saraswati is presented by agamayoga.com. The discourse of tonight with some easier administrative elements to just to make it happen. Every time in the previous seasons while I was holding discourses, uh, they were strictly discourses because there was not the possibility for immediate questions. I had a series of discourses about the Yoga Sutra of Patanjali and a series of discourses about the, uh, one of the Gospels in the last season, the Gospel according to Mark. And uh, in such uh, discourses, I'm coming and commenting fundamental texts or fundamental ideas of spirituality and um, just not to break the continuity of them, we were not taking questions. The idea was that you could write your questions on paper and put them in a mailbox and when enough of them would gather, we'll have a special session of questions and answers. But in this season, because we are having some shorter series of discourses, uh, then uh, we have realized that, for example, for the lecture of tonight, if I would ask you to put your questions in the mailbox and then they will come two weeks from now, it would kind of not be pertinent anymore. And uh, that is why we, uh, we decided that although questions and answers are breaking, are fragmenting, are a little bit difficult, Nevertheless, we, gave the, we took the decision to give you the opportunity to look into the questions and answers. However, because of the filming necessities, there has been a decision, there has been taken a decision that uh, the questions need to be heard uh, in audio and they also need to be selected in the order of the relevance and that's why I have asked uh, Mihaela to stand here, although the... Uh, Shakti group is very busy with the celebrations coming for the Shivaratri tomorrow evening. Um, I've asked her to stay here and to help me with the questions. Uh, also, as far as I know, Lori brought some scrap paper for those of you who came totally unprepared with uh, any paper for it, which means if you have any questions in the end of tonight's presentation, in the end of tonight's uh, discourse, uh, you will write those questions on paper and you will send them forward through the crowd until they will reach to Mihaela who sits right here in the corner. And she will read your questions and uh, I will answer to them so that they can be recorded because in many recordings uh, one cannot hear what the question really was which is being answered. Now let us start after this simple administration uh, Thing. So remember, get a paper if you'll have any questions and write them down. Um, this lecture which we do tonight and which is very, very relevant, it's one of the fundamental topics. Uh, that's why we do yoga, after all, we can say from the beginning. This lecture which you hear tonight is also part of, developed in a slightly different way with more practical approaches to it is part of our metaphysical workshop, which will also be held this year, as one of the basic pillars of metaphysics, because it's impossible to discuss about the basic metaphysical things without touching the idea of evolution, which is fundamental. We have to say from the very beginning that evolution, the very concept of evolution, is essential in spirituality, especially those of you who have been here more than a month or two months or three months and who really like yoga and who really are going for these yoga things, you wouldn't be here if there would not exist the concept of evolution because the very idea of spirituality is based on the fact that the human being evolves, that the human being transforms. Either you believe that the acme of your spiritual evolution will be moksha or mukti or nirvana or enlightenment and what it is, that basically means evolution. You are in a condition which the great masters have described as ignorance or the common level of consciousness and you are heading towards an existential status which is that of realization. 
Therefore, this means development. This means growing up. If there would be no evolution, then yoga would have absolutely no spiritual meaning and no other spiritual path would have any spiritual meaning. In Christianity, you evolve to reach the kingdom of heaven and to reach salvation and to reach eternal life. In Buddhism, you evolve to become a higher, a better human being, a bodhisattva and finally a Buddha. In Hinduism, you are evolving to become an enlightened, spiritually realized, liberated human being. Wherever you look in spirituality, there is a goal, there is a target, and that target is something higher, more evolved. Therefore, the idea of evolution is essential. All the spirituality is based, first of all, on the fact that the human beings, among others, can evolve, that the, this universe is based on evolution. If you do not accept the idea of evolution, remember that spirituality does not exist. There can be no spirituality, there can be no spiritual practice if we don't evolve. And therefore, evolution is closely related also with the process of time. What makes possible evolution? Everybody says, today I'm stupid, but tomorrow I'm going to be knowledgeable. Today I'm ignorant, but next month I could be a Buddha. And therefore the idea is, what does it take besides your effort? It always takes time. Therefore, evolution is just another definition of time in a spiritual way. Time goes two ways. Either it brings you death, or it brings you enlightenment. If you just sit and wait, time brings you old age, disease, weakness and death. If you do spiritual practice, time may bring you old age and weakness and finally death, but at the same time you have reached spiritual emancipation and that changes completely everything. And that is why remember that time is ambivalent. This is one of the great tantric meditations both in Tibetan Tantra as well as in Indian Tantra about the nature of time personified by Kali in India or by Mahakala in Tibet, the power of time which is friendly to some and makes them reach enlightenment and destructive to others making them reach death and annihilation. So this process is so important that's why we decided in this season to start my series of discourses with this one because there exist many false understandings. Exactly as in this yoga school we complain often that yoga has been relegated to the status of a gymnastics and it is done in a non-spiritual way and so many other things which you have heard in our courses. Exactly as we complain that um, uh, so many things are being debased or confused, such as the information about the chakras is propagated in erroneous ways, and a hundred different people believe a hundred different things about the chakras, while the chakras are like the lungs or the liver, no? There should be a unitary scientific vision about what Manipura chakra is, what it does, where it is located in the human body, and all the things about it, exactly as there is about the liver or about the lungs. And therefore, uh, while we complain that there is a lot of distortion of information, and this is a typical characteristic of Kali Yuga, I have planned a lecture on Kali Yuga one of the next weeks, because many of you hear me and other teachers talking about Kali Yuga, and it seems a very obscure concept. Until I'm holding that lecture, leave it to that. Kali Yuga is a little bit like the end of time in Christianity. It's a sort of age of spiritual debasement, in which spirituality is low, demonic tendencies are high, there is a lot of crookedness, a lot of lie, a lot of confusion, a lot of darkness, and because of that, even the spiritual information is misused, even the spiritual information is adulterated and it's very difficult to find some pure light 
in this ocean. And that's why we are saying that unfortunately, together with all this new age subculture, which is bringing together influences from all the world's spiritual traditions, plus the phantasmagoric imagination of some modern authors, then from all this subculture of the new age, there result some astonishingly weird concepts about evolution, where does the human being go, who are we, what is happening to the human life, what is the general meaning of human life, and all those things. And because of this, in this school I'm from time to time holding the metaphysical workshop to simply bring people back to the basics. Like maybe you heard that some people in the new age since 30 years preach that human beings choose to be born in a certain body in a certain incarnation. Like you are now, each one of you, incarnated in a certain body. And there exist false New Age prophets who say that you chose this deliberately. I beg to disagree. I profoundly disagree. Because starting with Buddha and Krishna and finishing with Ramakrishna and whoever you want in the field, everybody says that you have been compelled to be incarnated in the body where you are. You didn't choose anything. The fact that some people tell you that you chose it's because this is politically correct soothsaying of the 20th century to make people feel good, tell people what they want to hear so that they should pay money because they enjoy your talk. I'm not here to soothsay anybody and I will tell you even the hard things even if you don't like them. Because Buddha doesn't say that you chose to be in this life. Buddha says you've been compelled, the body which you've been given is according to your karma, if you had bad karma, you have a bad body, defective in many ways, and you suffer and bite the dust every day of your life, and there is no freedom and no choice in that. It's a prison. We are prisoners of a system that compels us to go in a certain way. See, that's why you need to hold such a lecture, to dispel all these soothsaying, idiotic statements made by some authors in the last 30 years, for reasons which are sometimes hard to fathom. And that is why we are analyzing today the very process of spiritual evolution as the yogis have seen it. I could have said uh, spiritual evolution according to Hindu Buddhism or spiritual evolution according to Asian occult doctrines or whatever. I chose to say spiritual evolution according to yoga because the yogis are pragmatical people, practical yogis, down to earth, not so much going into theological, doctrinal, dogmatic systems, but more like trying to analyze the facts and things down to earth. And that's why we are going to look into this difficult issue of spiritual evolution according to yoga. Now, the first thing which I want to say is, uh, starting conveying some ideas about spiritual evolution, that spiritual evolution means the evolution, the evolution of the soul. It refers to the soul, not to the flesh. And therefore, spiritual evolution is an idea which actually is a bit subtle, and it has been mock-copied by the idea of biological evolution. It's very, very interesting that old masters of spirituality, when they spoke about the evolution of the soul, which is a rogue concept, right? Because I'm not able to prove to you tonight the existence of a soul. You are all very well aware that materialistic philosophers and teachers, atheists and other skeptical people, claim that there is no soul. If you believe that there is no soul or spirit or whatever you want to call that immortal part of the human being, Buddha nature, Atman or whatever you wish to call it, then automatically this discussion is useless. You first have to, like we are talking only hypotheses and theories tonight for you because you are not even clear if you have a soul so that that soul can develop grow up, progress, grow up in knowledge and in other characteristics. 
But as long as you accept that there may exist a spiritual essence in the human being, and that, that spiritual essence, either we call it spirit or Atman or Buddha nature or something, is growing up, it is reaching, it is going towards a, a state of realization, then automatically we speak about a spiritual evolution. That means, let's make the difference very simply. Biologically, we define some symptoms of evolution. For example, Darwinists, like the general biological idea, says that we are coming from the animals, in particular from the primates, from the monkeys. No? And then we would look at the human beings and we would define some characteristics of evolution. Today, because of the racial ideas which have been uh, whipped up during the Second World War and in the beginning of the 20th century and in the very, very racistic societies of the 19th century British and French society and so many others, today, unfortunately, these studies in the biological evolution have been halted. They are politically incorrect and rogue forms of research because, for example, one of them decided, or that was the thing until the 1950s, that a sign of evolution is the so-called facial angle. And the facial angle is an angle which is made by two planes, one of them which goes through the apex of your forehead and through your front teeth, the upper incisives. So imagine a plane, just a sheet which goes aligned with the teeth and the forehead, and another one which goes from the upper teeth to the opening of the ear. No? And these two, they form an angle. And the theory was that the bigger this angle is, the more evolved biologically you are, because the monkeys have it small, and the dogs have it even smaller. The angle between forehead teeth, teeth, ear. No. Today it's politically incorrect. Why? Because the black people from Africa have it smaller than the white people from Europe. And then everybody would say, according to this theory, you are basically involving that everybody from Africa is less evolved than the, biologically than the people who are born in Europe. And you can't say a thing like this. It would be the death of you publicly or socially. And therefore, all this kind of research was halted. And today we don't look so much. It's a very dangerous idea to even say or think something about biological evolution. But we still hold the idea that, okay, some people biologically have bodies which are more animal. No? And we look at a man or at a woman... And we say, that man looks like an animal. Look at that man. He looks more like a gorilla than like a human being. No? And it's without any pun. Like we can even use it in a joking, sweet way. I'm not talking about social rights and social movements. I'm talking here strictly about uh, a, a kind of casual evaluation. No? And therefore, what I'm trying to say here is precisely the antidote to this materialistic blindness of the people who blinded by this theory of evolution. This is one of the evils of the materialistic theory of evolution because immediately we started measuring people on earth biologically, not spiritually, trying to say those people have more primitive bodies than those people. That man looks more animal than that man. That woman looks more ape-like than that woman. No, we can measure a few things like those. But what do we do about the spirit which is inside the body? Because the spirit is not the body. And while there exists a certain synchronization, like our spirit is not completely separate from the body, nevertheless the spirit and the body are not quite the same thing. And therefore, I can look at one person in this room who has very emphasized animal characteristics in their body, physically, and at the same time discover an exceptional soul, an exceptional spirit, a spirit of a great refinement and a spirit of a great subtility, a spirit which is the result 
of a great spiritual evolution. That's why this was a, that's why I say this is a mock copy. It was one of the tragedies because spirituality kept talking about a spiritual evolution. And isn't it interesting that in the biological evolution, we are talking about like, what was the first? The vegetal life, vegetation was first. The monocellular vegetal, like the algae in the ocean, the monocellular vegetal organisms, and then from there, there appeared pluricellular organisms, and we started having seaweed and all sorts of sea vegetation, and it became vegetation on the ground, and it became ferns, and then it became bushes and trees, and first some more primitive trees, like the fir trees and the coniferos, which are old sorts of biological uh, vegetation vegetation, and then the non-coniferous trees like the oak tree and the bar birch tree and the others. And then from vegetal life we move to animal life, first monocellular animal life, and then we started with the simple forms of life, non-vertebrate life like mollusks and others, and then going towards insects and reptiles and fishes and birds and finally mammals, and on top of the mammal evolution reaching to the human being which has self-awareness, consciousness. Therefore, we have a description of the biological evolution. But the very interesting thing is that this idea does not belong to Darwin or to Lamarck or whoever contributed to this. Actually, Darwin was a stooge used by these people, by the way, as a parenthesis, because Darwin, even in the last writings in his life, still claims that God created life on earth and that there is a sort of conscious thing. So the fact that people call it Darwinism, is an irony based on people's ignorance, because Darwin did not stand for Darwinism. But he was used as a smokescreen, like since he wrote those ideas in a book, people called it Darwinism, and there it is. But the point is, the fact that before the mammals were the birds, and before the birds were the fish kingdom, and before those we had reptiles or whatever, it doesn't really matter how accurate I'm going, and batracians and all those things, and we go down to the non-vertebrated life and so on, and then vegetal life, guess what? Even the early Buddhist philosophers and Buddha himself write this 2,500 years ago, only that they say it's not about the flesh, they say it's about the spirit. They say the spiritual evolution, while being mocked by the biological evolution, funnily enough, the biological evolution just copies, doesn't manage to be original. It just copies the idea that the spirit is going through various stages of life. And the idea in spiritual evolution is that we look at the spirit, not at the flesh. Studying the evolution of the DNA and of the flesh, it is exactly like we study the evolution of the automobile. In the 19th century, people invented automobiles. First, there were automobiles going with steam engines, really primitive and clumsy. Then there started coming the explosion engines, the diesel, the auto, and all the others, and slowly we started having cars. The first ridiculous ones which were exploding all the time and breaking down every five minutes, and then going to Ford T, and then going to the modern automobiles, and hybrid cars, and whatever will come on the market. So you can have a museum with the evolution of the automobile, and you will see the streamlined modern automobiles of today, as the result of the evolution starting from steam engines and primitive engines 150 years ago and more. This is biological evolution. Spiritual evolution says who are the drivers of those engines, who sits in the driver's seat in those engines. That means the cars have evolved. What about the users of those cars? Like in spirituality, it is common sense for me to say, this is my car. It's a vehicle, right? In Sanskrit, it's called a kosha. So somebody occupies this kosha, and that somebody would be my spirit, or whatever you want to call it. Therefore, I'm a utilizer. 
I'm borrowing from Mother Nature molecules and atoms which have built this body. I'm sustaining this body for a hundred years of age and then I'm dropping it. Therefore, this is my automobile. But the question is, who is the driver? What can I say about the driver? And this is, therefore, the idea of spiritual evolution, that the spirit itself participating into the life of this planet, and let's be open-minded, maybe in the life of myriads of planets in this universe, because there is a great chance that we are not the only form of life, and this is not the only populated planet in this universe. Even clairvoyants like Swedenborg claim that there is subtle life on other planets, even in our solar system. Therefore, I am interested in the evolution, not of the biological thing, which we can have theories about that, exact or inexact, but what's happening to the spirit who experiences life under this form because after all if you are a driver and if you drive an old car and then somebody gives you a newer car and somebody gives you a newer car which has a radio and a cd player and then you get a newer car which has electric window shields and other and other electric windows and uh, a climatic system and so on and then you have a car which has a gps and a computer you grow up you evolve as a driver. You learn more and more about driving equipment which is more and more sophisticated. The old cars were not at all that sophisticated and you didn't even need a driver in the 1940s, a driving license to drive a car in those days. Therefore, what I'm trying to say is the driver evolves also by driving different models of cars. And thus, there appears, of course, the idea that the spirit learns. Thus, it evolves. It grows up in knowledge. And this is the spiritual evolution. Perhaps the most rational way in which spiritual evolution was uh, expressed was by some Buddhist philosophers, and Buddha himself started it, when they brought forth the idea of the great wheel of Dharma, as they call it, or the circle of evolution. It's called the wheel of Dharma or the wheel of evolution because they drew it as a circle and that's sometimes confusing and scary because it makes people believe that if evolution goes in a circle, we come back to where we started from, which is not literally true. And I'm going to explain what was intended through that, as not I interpret directly the sayings of those great commentators, but they have been commented by great eminent spiritual masters. So we just have to take their statements and see what was done. This is why now I'm going to draw, they asked me in the beginning if I wanted to use the board, there is specially this drawing that I'm interested to do, and all the rest will take much less. The wheel of Dharma, the wheel of evolution, is a grand wheel, which is of course a symbol. I will represent it. This pen is a bit weak, and I hope you can see. Let me see if the green is much stronger, not much stronger. But still, maybe. So this is one circle, not two. It's just an imperfection of the hand drawing. So, this wheel of Dharma would say that the spirit, when interacting with matter, it attaches itself first to the most elementary, simple forms of existence. And you'd be surprised to know that starting with Buddhist commentators, and great Hindu authors like the Vyasa, the commentator of the Yoga Sutra of Patanjali, and then modern commentators such as the Theosophical House, which took a lot of teaching from the Buddhists and Hindus and others, they consider that the first form of manifestation of the spirit in this world is related to the atom. Even the atoms have a spirit which of course is bringing up a huge discussion about what is consciousness then. There exists a theosophical book published by Annie Besant and Lidbitter, if I remember correctly, which is called The Consciousness of the Atom. 
If an atom has consciousness, it means an atom is alive, which is exactly what Werner Heisenberg and Albert Einstein actually said, that you cannot imagine even a single elementary particle without the consciousness, because if there is no subject which observes, then the universe cannot exist. There is no object without subject. The witness defines reality. Um, what I'm trying to say, therefore, is, and I will make this short because I don't really need to go into the details, consciousness attaches itself to atoms. If your consciousness has once upon a time, a billion years ago, been the consciousness of an atom, then what is consciousness? What is Atman if it can belong even to an atom? And after atoms, it goes to more complicated structures, which are molecules and crystals, orderly structures made of atoms. So the crystal is much more than just a simple atom. There are properties in crystals, which until today flabbergast scientists, that the crystals seem sometimes to be alive. There are crystals which have behaviors, which look very much like the behaviors of the life, but everybody says crystals are not alive. Crystals are just inorganic matter, not living matter. And then at some point, after going through very advanced structures, then uh, crystalline structures, molecular structures, we are entering the vegetal kingdom with monocellular vegetal organisms like monocellular algae in the ocean and more complex and more complex and yes bushes and trees and that would say that of course a tree let's take a excellent thing a tree i don't know who it was emerson or who it was who said only god can create a tree a tree is a living being it has emotions it expresses fear, it expresses pain, it feels when another tree dies or suffers, therefore it has some sort of <coughs> telepathic abilities. This secret life of the plants is absolutely fascinating and scary, and it has been studied by open-minded scientists. In the book of Yogananda, in the autobiography of a yogi, he quotes the experiments of Luther Burbank, who managed to raise, to grow, cacti without thorns, but not by DNA or genetical selection, by loving them. He was talking to the cactuses and telling them that nobody is going to harm them, that they are going to be loved, that they don't need to be thorny because they don't need to defend themselves from anything anymore. And the cactuses grown in the lab of Luther Burban had no thorns, which shows that the vegetal life reacts. We talk to it, and in a mysterious way, it understands us. It's scary, because this brings us to the idea, which is a typical tantric idea, that the whole universe is alive. The shamans say that there is a spirit attached to your motorbike. Your motorbike is alive. You can bless it. You can purify it. You can even give it some alms if you want. You can make a deal with it. It can support you or it can be enemical to you. Like you can have a good chemistry with it or you can have a bad chemistry with it. So is the story with your iPod or iPhone or computer. Everything according to shamans, everything is alive. Why? Because a single atom is alive. What to speak about great intelligent structures already. This is a shocking view for the skeptical person, but it doesn't matter. We don't want to go as far as that. We just stick to the kingdoms of nature, mineral, vegetal, up till advanced vegetal forms, which may be much more complex than what we think. And then finally we enter in the animal kingdom. The animal kingdom is already a bit more free Right, The vegetation, except some monocellular organism and some other small vegetal beings, they have a root. They don't have the freedom to move. 
to act, but the animals already roam, move, swim, fly, walk, and they, therefore, the mingling, the life, the decisions, the actions, the karma which results from it is much more complex. And we start with primitive animals going towards higher and higher levels of animals. And I wouldn't like to put it right here on the bottom. Let's make the animal realm much, much bigger. And let's say somewhere here, it's not on purpose that it's put on the bottom, really. We could put it as well here. It's just a matter of convention. We are reaching to the end of the animal kingdom and the beginning of the human levels of consciousness. Of course, some people skeptically would say that humans are also a form of animals, which biologically may be true, but at the same time, spiritually, it's definitely not true because of this unique novel characteristic, which is the awareness, the consciousness, the capacity to ask yourself, who am I? Why am I here? What is this? What's happening? All this actualization of which I talked so much to you and which we take for granted because we do it every day during our lives and we think it's natural. But the dolphins, which are highly intelligent animals with bigger brains than the human beings, don't have it. They hoped a lot that dolphins would be a failed evolution lineage which went into a dead end, but nevertheless highly evolved because they have intelligence, they have love manifestations, they have many characteristics which are half human, and yet animal psychology research demonstrated that there is not yet awareness, neither in the chimps, nor in the gorillas, nor in other advanced forms of life. And therefore, we, you see, here, even a Darwinist would say, yeah, that's how life evolved biologically. But the spiritual authors said, that this is how life evolves spiritually, which means the spirit gets attached to forms of life higher and higher exactly in this order until it reaches the human. And as you can see, the human level is not the end of the circle. It's not the end of the process. There exists what we could call post-human or superhuman stages of evolution, such as, for example, both Tibetan and Indian mystics call the devas, which means the deities. In slang it would be the gods, but because in English language the word god is the same for the ultimate cosmic consciousness and for a god like Zeus or something, because of that I prefer generally not to use the word god in English, but to use the word deity. Those are deities, and God is a different concept, truly, since ever since the onset of the monotheistic beliefs and others. And therefore, the, even the human being still evolves. Like the theories of spirituality say, you are a spirit that has evolved through minerals, vegetal and animal kingdom, and now you have reached to the point of being a human being, and you are still evolving. The trip is not over. Evolution continues, and that's why even in the human beings, we can find human beings who are less evolved and human beings who are more evolved, and this evolution as a human being leads somewhere. There is something after the human being, and it goes actually so far because then the point which is disturbing is well yes we can see it goes on and on and it makes sense but what disturbs us is that this process goes to a sort of perfect place where it meets with the minerals with the atoms and while in a certain way if we look at the theories of yoga not to mention other theories from buddhism hinduism and others we can see that there are some similarities, like if you would imagine, imagine, because you cannot conceive of it unless you can be it through Samyama, but if you can imagine the consciousness of an atom, can you imagine any emotions? Not really. 
can like it's something which should be extremely pure extremely simple something which is like elementary really but when you look at the buddha consciousness as presented in mystical literature the buddha consciousness or the jivanmukta consciousness in indian mysticism is also an extremely pure consciousness the jivanmukta says patanjali is the one who has stopped his mind what is yoga yoga is the arresting of the movements of the mind like when you reach yoga or samadhi or spiritual realization your mind stops then what's the difference between you and an atom the zen masters of japan say you should meditate like a rock the zen gardens which have a rock in the middle and you sit in zazen and you meditate on the rock you should be as desireless as stable as equanimous as clear as unmovable as a rock that sounds very primitive doesn't it because we come the whole circle and we go through the soap opera of life with all the ambitions and people building pyramids and eiffel towers and accumulating wealth and fame and so and eventually when we become bodhisattvas and buddhas we are going to the zazen of a rock that your mind stops and your consciousness is clear no samskaras no uh, residues of the mind no vasanas no subconscious tendencies then enlightenment is turning back to childhood you know once we were happy because we were like crystals we were pure we were atomic consciousness in a sort of blank void empty form of the mind and then you make lots of efforts to evolve and to become a superhuman a deity and finally a bodhisattva and the buddha an enlightened being to reach to the same and then what does it happen you become a rock again you become an atom again actually this circle of evolution was done like this only for the simplicity of the diagram because it can't be like this nobody has ever compared a buddha we are with a rock except in the meaning of this purity this is one of the buddhist definitions of emptiness that the emptiness means that all the turmoil or the dichotomies all the dualizing thought everything has been eliminated and we are experiencing a clear universal consciousness and therefore but nobody says that you get the status of a mineral or of a crystal basically this circle is to be taken as a spiral there is a third dimension to it this way so it goes like this which means there is a similarity between the buddha state and the crystal state but they are on two different coils it's at a different level the buddha is not an atom because the buddha has something which the atom doesn't have and that is the memory of a long long travel through manifestation it's the accumulated experience by accumulating that experience remember that memory is the divine characteristic that means apinava gupta a great tantric master said it is only about god that we can say he remembers because if there would not be that continuity the whole universe would be discontinuous and fall apart the silver thread the golden thread through the whole universe is atma or paramatma the supreme consciousness the buddha nature which therefore contains memory it's the only thing which contains the total memory of evolution and therefore a buddha remembers Gautama Buddha the historical Buddha 25 centuries ago in the second before reaching enlightenment he remembered his 10000 lifetimes before that present life which he lived in Nepal and India where he reached enlightenment therefore there is a memory even if you are a buddha there is an experience a huge experience which is with you and the atom doesn't have that experience therefore 
It is a circle and at the same time it is not. Now the only disturbing thing, and we'll have to take it as a hypothesis, as an intellectual hypothesis really, the only disturbing thing about this great wheel of Dharma, about this great image of evolution as a circle, is only the fact that everybody will realize immediately that this cannot happen in one lifetime. And that's why this brings immediately into discussion the hypothesis of reincarnation, or the scientific name of it, metempsychosis, or transmigration of the soul. That the soul quits one body, and after a period of time, it assumes a new body. And thus that the soul exists again and again. The soul reincarnates, comes back in this world. Now, uh, this idea is not that dumb, after all, intellectually. And you know probably that there have been lots of experiments in the last 30 years, ever since the Tibetan Buddhists came to the West, it's casual, there are movies like the Little Buddha and others where people talk freely about the fact that this kid could be the incarnation of a Tulku Lama or something. So even Westerners grown in the Christian cradle whose theology uh, rabidly denies the idea of reincarnation, uh, therefore even modern Christians are kind of okay with reincarnation. A simple survey done some 20 years ago showed that 80% of the interviewed people on the street in the West freely believed in reincarnation as a possibility. And um, therefore, it's not, such a, it's not such a totally terrible idea. The problem is that nobody has ever been able to give an ultimate confirmation of this. We do not have a confirmation scientifically that there is a soul which survives after the death of the physical body. Nobody has been able to give a full scientific demonstration of that. Therefore, we do not have a full scientific demonstration to the fact that there is a soul which survives the physical body and that that soul moves in a new body after a while. That's why for you, take that as a hypothesis. I would like to tell you what I tell to everybody in the school. If you have any qualms about this thing with the reincarnation, remember that it's just an intellectual model. And even the Tibetans, who are some of the main apostles of reincarnation in the modern world, they do not believe in reincarnation ad literam. This story that something like a butterfly comes out of your heart at the time of death and it floats somewhere and then it descends in the womb of a woman and becomes a new child and is reborn, the Tibetan mystical literature considers it preposterous. It's simply like a Walt Disney cartoon. The Tibetans say that's how Svadhisthana chakra people want to understand reincarnation because it's like a fairy tale and like a cartoon and you can relate to it emotionally. But actually what the Tibetan metaphysics has to say about it is flabbergasting. I'm inviting you to read the book, the groundbreaking book of Lama Anagarika Govinda published some 50 years ago, which is called The Foundations of Tibetan Mysticism. And there you are going to find an academic high-level Ajna Chakra view on what the Tibetans call the transmigration of the soul, and you are going to see that it's not about any soul or butterfly which comes out of your heart and goes anywhere. But to describe those things to people who live their lives on the second chakra is utterly impossible. And that's why even Tibetan Buddhism had to find a watered-down, sugar-coated version to sell it to the masses so that the masses should get the essence of the message without actually getting the foundational, the, the mechanism through which it happens. That is why, please remember that we are not going to argue about this. Even Gnostic Christianity, and from Gnostic Christianity, the Bogomils, the Cathars, the Albigensians and others, in Christianity, they upheld the idea of reincarnation. And therefore, it, it exists in the Kabbalah. The Book of Splendor, the Sefer HaTzohar, 
says very clearly a human soul goes from life to life accumulating quality after quality like polishing a precious stone facet after facet until it becomes perfect and pleasing to God because this perfection cannot be reached in one lifetime. If we just look at the human existence, how could I as a person learn the human condition in one lifetime? First of all, that it's very unfair because out of a thousand people, only one is interested in spirituality. So 999 people out of a thousand don't make any effort. So they are definitely not going to learn everything about the human condition. And even those who do make spiritual practice and who do make spiritual efforts, how can you learn everything in one lifetime? For example, those of you who are men, how can you learn what a woman feels when she is in a female body? Is it possible? At least then you should have two lifetimes, one as a man and one as a woman. That would kind of give you a chance to see the other side of the coin, to see another angle to things. But besides being a man and a woman, there are so many existential conditions which are different. You are strong, you are weak, you are intelligent, you are not so intelligent. You are virtuous, you are vice-ridden, you are rich, you are poor, you are powerful socially, you are, powerful, you are not powerful socially, and you are healthy, you are crippled, you are this, you are that. So many things can vary, and that's why... How can we ever expect that a human being, even with spiritual inclinations, is going to learn about the human, about life and the human condition in just 60, 70, 80, 90 years of biological life on earth? That's why intellectually, most people agree and they say it makes sense because one person is born with polio and is crippled for the rest of a life and another person discovers mathematical theorems at the age of six or composes music at the age of six. And therefore, it's so unfair. Nature seems to be, life seems to be so unequal. We cannot explain these things by just a one-lifetime type of existence. You would be surprised, by the way of this, that there have been profound spiritualists and metaphysicians, such as the legendary René Guénon, the French metaphysician, one of the biggest of the 20th century, who actually claimed that they believed that evolution goes through one life in each regnum of nature, and therefore they did not believe that you can be born twice as a human, even in spite of my logical opposition. They simply said human life is human life. This is it, and whatever you make of it, that's the end, like the Christian theologians. This idea is so long and so complicated, we really, I didn't really want to comment too much on it tonight, and therefore I'm not going unless you'll have questions at some point. But remember, the Hindus, the Buddhists, the Taoists, the Jainists, the, you name it, the Sikhs, the Gnostic Christians, the Hermetic tradition of the West, the Egyptians and the Native Americans and whatever, all those spiritualities except the theology of Christianity, of main trend Christianity and then Islam, they are the only ones that stand away from this. Rajneesh, the controversial, notorious, whatever epithet you want to ascribe to him, Osho Rajneesh, was making a commentary as an Indian in India upon this. He said, I can understand why the Christian theologians, they took the reincarnation thing from their theology out, because in India it's been one of the biggest tragedies and it made people spiritually indolent and lazy. Because everybody says, Oh, this life, I'm caught very much in the web of life, and I have obligations and this, and therefore this is a very perfect excuse for me not to make any effort of evolution more than converting oxygen into carbon dioxide, and therefore I will do it in the next life. And then somebody like St. Francis of Assisi can come and point a finger at your chest and say, what if there is no next life? and you screw up pathetically right now as we talk. 
Therefore, if I'm telling to people there is no next life, automatically this means that it's going to put fire under your bottom. It's going to motivate you because you've got one shot and that one shot is here and now. There is no previous life. There is no future life. If you don't reach eternal life, salvation and the kingdom of heaven right now in this body, in this life, you are going to fail miserably because there is no other life and no other chance. It's motivating, isn't it? And therefore, pedagogically, it may be a white lie, but nevertheless, it puts people to work. The idea of reincarnation, while much more logical and soothing, and kind of it makes sense, and most people say, I can live with that, makes perfect sense to me, nevertheless, it contains the danger that you keep postponing. And you keep postponing, and the question is, if not now, then when? If not you, then who? And thus, there is a double-edged thing there. And what I always tell to people in the school is this. In spite of the controversy, like religions have clashed against each other because of this reincarnation, the Gnostics with Origenes and others were outlawed by the official church. They were expelled and declared heretics and so on because they dared to believe in reincarnation. What's really the big difference about this experience in spirituality shows that both in spiritual meridians, lineages, societies where people believed in reincarnation as well as in spiritual lineages where people absolutely did not believe in reincarnation, in both those environments there were men and women who reached enlightenment. What does this demonstrate? To any logical person, it demonstrates immediately that either you believe in reincarnation or not, it makes no difference. You can still reach enlightenment. The belief in reincarnation is not a condition for reaching spiritual emancipation. It only satisfies your logical mind because it makes more sense and thus it's a kind of rational explanation of life and things. But, remember, either of you, any one of you in this room tonight, you choose for your future 20 years from now to believe in reincarnation or not, you still stand an excellent chance to reach cosmic consciousness, ecstasy, salvation, enlightenment, moksha, whatever you want to call it. That belief has nothing to do with your spiritual practice or with the development of the higher awareness of the human being. And that's why be cool about this thing with the reincarnation. You like it? Assume this philosophy in your life. You don't like it or it stands against your deep beliefs? Discard it. It works with or without it. It's just an intellectual instrument for explaining things. Now that you started seeing the whole idea of this evolution, which, again, in the Hindu-Buddhistic and Jainistic, Oriental, Taoist, Confucianistic, Shamanistic, Shintoistic, Tantric, whatever, Bun, uh, and other, any other of these systems, and many, many, many others, according to them, the evolution is understandable easier if you see it as a process of reincarnation, that the spirit is moving from form of life to form of life, but generally it goes forward. This was called by the Buddhists the wheel of Dharma, and it's very interesting because Dharma is a word which would mean like the will of God. That's what the universe is like. It's like there is a river. Imagine that circle as a river. And this river flows. This river flows constantly. What do the trees do to turn into animals? What do the animals do to turn into humans? Nothing special. They just breathe. As I said earlier, they convert oxygen into carbon dioxide. And in spite of this spiritual passivity, the whole nature flows forward. Which means 
there is a sort of automatic process of evolution which neither I nor you can control in any way. It's the Dharma. It's the will of the universe. That is why great philosophers have said, if you would like to ask, what's the will of God? What does God want from me and you? A very simple metaphysical answer would be, God wants you to evolve. That's why you are here. That's why the trees are here. That's why the algae are here. That's why the animals are here. That's why we are here. Because we evolve and the evolution is embedded in the universe. It is an inbuilt law in this universe. We didn't build it and we can't take it out. We didn't start the evolution and we can't stop it. In the moment when Buddha started preaching his great spiritual message, they say that he put, he set into motion the wheel of Dharma, like he created a system to promote evolution, accelerated evolution perhaps. We are going to get back to that. That's a very deep statement. Therefore, Dharma in Sanskrit, in Bhagavad Gita, for example, in the Bhagavad Gita, Dharma means the righteousness, the way things are supposed to be, the will of God, the universal will. What is the Dharma? The Dharma is that minerals turn into plants, plants turn into animals, animals turn into humans, humans turn into deities and bodhisattvas and Buddhas, and this is Dharma. This is the will of God, if you prefer. This was a live recording of Swami Vivekananda Saraswati. For more information, visit us on agamayoga.com or go directly to agamayoga.com slash downloads.